1: Hello and welcome to D&I Spy, the weekly podcast which covers what's really going on in the world of diversity and inclusion. I'm Dr Julie Humphreys. And I'm Natasha Whitehurst. And in today's episode, we are exploring women in aviation.
0: And we're joined by Tracy Curtis-Taylor. Tracy's an aviator who's renowned as one of Britain's foremost female adventurers. Tracy recently published her book, Bird, about her life and flying adventures, which is soon to be the subject of a... Uh, global
2: documentary release.
1: So welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much for coming in.
2: Thank you very much. Delightful to be here.
1: Uh, first of all, what inspired you to write the book?
2: Well, actually, it was suggested to me by um, my literary agent who'd spotted some of the publicity in the media. So he approached me over it. I mean, I had thought about it, but I, I never actually believed I could do it. Why? But. Because, it, you know, it takes a lot of concentration and time. And actually, it was only over COVID where s- suddenly one was forced to stay at home, you know, in, in solitude. And so for me, I had a, I had a productive COVID. So I you, so you could really focus. Yeah, wow. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. That's good. And it's called Bird and you're referred to as Bird in a Plane or Bird in a Biplane. Uh, where did those titles come from?
2: Well, you know, the whole ethos of the flights was around women, you know, the pioneering women but I I just liked somebody punned it to me they said oh you know some bird in a biplane and I thought gosh that sounds great even though other people have said to me oh that sounds vaguely sexist and the Americans will never get it of course Boeing yeah Boeing came on board as my first sponsor and I actually flashed them a message and I said what do you think about bird in a a biplane bird in a Boeing biplane they came back we said we loved it we can teach you Brits you know one or two things about humour as well so
1: (laughs) ah okay so you didn't find it offensive you found it as, as something as like empowering sort of thing
2: yeah I, I liked I mean look it's about bird flight this is yeah. about the view of the world from you know the bird's eye view of the world so no I don't have a problem with you know birds and I in fact I call all my friends bird old <laughs> bird so it's a bit of a running joke really
0: okay
1: um so you come from Stamford in Lincolnshire um and you say it wasn't a privileged background so how did you get into aviation
2: Well, almost by accident, really. I mean, yeah, look, there was nobody in my family who flew. There was no obvious way into it. It didn't even occur to me, actually. Mm. It just was never, ever presented as a possible career choice. There was no real formal career advice at school. But at 16, I went to Canada. We'd been raised in Canada. My twin sister and I went back just after we'd done our O-levels. And uh, I'd seen a, a sign at the side of the road advertising introductory flight you know it was about ten dollars and I thought that's me that's me (laughs) so while my twin sister went shopping I went flying and you know it was just a brief flight but I was so enraptured by it that this poor Austrian pilot couldn't get rid of me and he ended up taking (laughs) me on a charter so I was actually flying all afternoon wow and it was it was it was a life changer so what was it about it that that was so life-changing I think, you know, something about moving in three dimensions and the view, the, the the detachment, the freedom, the beauty of it. But, of course, I was 16 then, and I was, you know, still at school. I was going to go on and do my, my A-levels. And I, I couldn't afford to fly in Britain is the bottom line. It's still quite a, uh, you know, a, an ex, it's, it's expensive mm. to do wherever you're doing it in the world, but particularly in Britain. And it just wasn't accessible. So it wasn't until I, in fact, had... Moved to New Zealand, and I was then working. And, of course, New Zealand is this wonderful aviation country. You know, there's just loads of wonderful aero clubs. And I was based in Queenstown, so I started, I started there.
1: And you self-funded.
2: Uh, absolutely. So I just waitressed. You know, I was just doing, you know, part-time jobs, waitressing, working yes. on a garage forecourt. And over five years, I, I did my private license, my commercial license, and an instructor rating but the key to it you know what i the thing about flying was i just fell in love with old aeroplanes and that was really fired by the movies you know those those magnificent men in their flying mm. machines i think that film has been with me all my life and it just you know it just captures obviously those early years of the the romantic adventure of flight which everybody can relate to and when i first saw my first you know, old biplane. I just thought, gosh, you you could smell it, you know, the smell of oil and leather and the joystick and, you know, the the whole thing. They're just such fantastic characters. And I looked at this and I thought, God, I wonder if it's possible to fly that. And it didn't seem so. But of course, you just plug away at it. And in time, you know, through, I joined the New Zealand Warbirds, which was really my entree into flying historic aeroplanes.
0: And so um, your book details three um, epic flights which paid homage to two female aviators, so Amy Johnson and Lady Mary Heath. Can you give us a flavour of some of your adventures that you've had, maybe maybe some of your kind of top favourite ones?
2: Top favourite? Well, Africa was, of course, the first expedition in 2013 and, and Mary Heath famously was the first person to fly solo from Cape Town back to England. So, you know, she was flying in what was predominantly... You know, British Empire. You know, up the east side of Africa. So it was the sort of time-honored Cape to Cairo route. So wherever she went, there was the, the British were there basically. So she had wonderful support in terms of fuel, oil, engineering, etc. Flying this, you know, a vintage aeroplane now in the sort of post nine eleven world. You know, you're up against phenomenal security issues, bureaucracy, the cost to do this. Um, but just just one of the, one of the amusing incidents really, although you know, at the time it, it was was fairly harrowing, was 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 going into um, the airport in Livingston, which is which is um, well it's Zambia. It's just on the on the on the um, Victoria Falls. So, of course, that was going to be one of the great highlights of the flight, seeing Victoria Falls from the air. And you can see it as you approach from miles away because you get like this, there's a there's a, a water vapour cloud that forms over the over the falls. So that's what you look for because it's virtually flat terrain and then the falls drop down several hundred feet. So as you come across the horizon, you see this distinctive cloud, almost like smoke, and you just aim for that. But... You know, there's so much um tourist traffic. I I was concerned that, you know, we'd be we'd be put up at ten thousand feet above the falls. It's it's about two thousand feet above sea level. But you know, they they circuit traffic up to ten thousand feet above the falls, and I thought, oh gosh, you know, we, we'll we'll be so high, it'll be hopeless. You know, all the tourist flights, the helicopters. Mm. But I'd been speaking to a, a pilot on the ground in Cape Town, he said, No, he said, Look, it's off season at the moment. If you get there at lunchtime, you know, fill your boots, there'll be nobody around. So timed it to get there, <laughs> about quarter to one. Time check as I approached, And sure enough, nobody in sight. So came in really much lower. And we, we were able to fly it at about 200 yeah. feet above wow. the force. Wow. And there was, just a, there was just a few buzzards flying <laughs> around. But I did get into trouble for it because when I came to land, you know, 10 minutes later yeah. at Livingston, the, the airport was only about three miles away. And the air traffic controller was was deeply underwhelmed by the fact that mm-hmm. I was actually fl- flying lower than I should have been. And I was summoned to, the, to oh. see the, the, head, the, head, uh, the head controller. And he just sort of said, you know, he said, you know, this sort of thing might be all very well in Britain. <laughs> but, you know, here in, here in Zambia, we have health and safety. <laughs> so I, I was, you know, su- suitably chastised by it, but it was worth it. It was worth it for the view, I can tell you.
1: Well, speaking of safety, you also document um, one of your crashes or a crash, um, and that's ended really harrowing. Do you want to just talk us through that because you were comp- uh, you seemed um, uninjured from it virtually?
2: Well, completely and very luckily so. But this is a very strong aeroplane, and funnily enough, you know, people had often asked me, you know, you worried about crashing, and I said, well, of course, engine failure is is always a, a you know it's always a possibility whether it's an old aeroplane or a new aeroplane. And this was, um, this actually happened in America of, you know, you, you fly <laughs> of all places. You sort of think, you know, it's endlessly safe. But the fact is it can happen any time. Mm. And, and that's what happened. I was taking off from Winslow in Arizona. Again, it's it's a high altitude airfield. It's in the high desert. So you're already taking Sorry, off. What does that mean? High altitude? El- high altitude, airfield? meaning it's it, it's 5,000 feet above sea level. Now that has a direct uh, effect on your engine performance. Okay. This is, this is a, a piston engine with a propeller. It's aspirated, so it means that it's affected by air density. Now, at sea level, you get maximum performance, obviously. The higher up in the, in the atmosphere that you go, your performance starts okay. to drop off. So I can get this aeroplane up to about 10,000 feet okay. on any given day, depending on the temperatures and the pressures. So on this particular day, I was taking off at 5,000 feet above sea level. And then added to that the heat of the day, it was equivalent to taking off at 7,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's you're taking off with less than half the engine power mm. before you even get into the air. And shortly after takeoff, the engine lost about 300 RPM. And just, you know, the power just just completely went. And of course, I'm climbing out the most critical time you can get an engine failure. And, of course, you just, you know, instinctively check forward. I, I was only, I was 100 feet, so no time to really do anything. The worst thing you can do at that point, of course, is is inadvertently stall the aeroplane. And that's when it goes in vertically. And that is what kills people when in, in a situation like that. So I just check forward to keep it flying, to keep it gliding and, and just turned it very gently through about 30 degrees, you know, into the clear desert. But, of course, it's rough ground. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's sage bushes. And so, so hit quite hard, you know, managed to keep the wings level, hit quite hard, and then it somersaulted. And that's what did the damage. But, of course, in the cockpit, so I had one of the crew with me, my engineer, Ewald Gritch. The boys were filming overhead. Um, so it, it, the, the airplane went into a, into a sort of diagonal cartwheel. You know the right hand oh undercarriage my. was torn off, and of course, so with the it's you know the, with the biplane, it was the, the the sort of wooden structure of the wings that absorbed the energy of the crash, and they they sort of rotated around the cockpit Gosh. really. So you know we were sort of anchored in. I mean, four point military harness in it. So I didn't even have whiplash. Wow. You know, <laughs> and just got out with a little scratch on my ankle, but the aeroplane was all but destroyed. I have to mm. say, it was it was a shocker. And it took you a year to. To get that back, did no, it? No, no, oh. no, no, no. You know what? The the FAA, which is the Federal Aviation Authority in America, they took it down to Phoenix. Um, they did some tests on it. They they it was, it was a clogged carburetor. so mm. they cleared that and they got the engine running again. Oh, so wow. they put clean fuel in it and got the engine running. But I then airlifted the wreck back because nobody had been injured. It was a, it was a pretty straightforward process. So sure. I had the wreck airlifted back to Hungary it was like a medical (laughs) evacuation (laughs) back to Hungary had it rebuilt in record time so Ewald Grich and his crew at Rare Bird Aviation he'd already restored it once for me and then rebuilt it the second time and I was I was back flying it two months later I had it at the Farnborough Air Show at the end of that summer which was Boeing's centenary so that was really important for me to be there with the airplane
0: wow I mean, I, I can't imagine having that much, um, I don't know what the word is, but <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh Well, there's a lot of devotion behind yeah. this. Mm. This is a real passion project. And the engineering Definitely. team who supported it was, were just world class. Yeah. So, you know, mm. wonderful support with all awesome. of it, the expeditions. And of course, I had a, a sponsorship with GIC Re, my yeah. insurance, Indian insurers. So they were magnificent at just expediting everything mm. to get us back in the air.
0: And um, talking, um, then thinking about kind of inspirational kind of female strength, um, you've got really kind of special memory of your father's older sisters. Um, They provided really kind of like lifelong examples of female strength and stoicism, you've said. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, my father had three older sisters and funny enough, it was a pattern that repeated in our family. So three girls and then my younger brother um so we all, we you know they would always come and see us when we were being raised in canada we were out there for 9 years so even though we you know were, were raised there we had a very sort of english upbringing and mm. and our, our aunts would bring us english comics and chocolates and records and so on but they were such kind understated deeply loyal supportive um, people mm. very christian actually in in their approach to life, but very uh very unassuming and very modest you know and I think it was part of that that postwar generation, mm-hmm. but they absolutely loved what I was doing and and were very, very supportive and you know i think th- they provided me with an example of just quiet stoicism, really. So
1: as a woman flying planes and biplanes around the world, you're in a real minority. Um, So what barriers or challenges did you face and do you still face?
2: Well, firstly, there was really nobody else doing this, never mind female, males either, to be taking an aeroplane, a vintage aeroplane, these sorts of distances, you know, over 35,000 miles, low level, over five uh, continents. Issues, challenges as a female... um, Firstly it's not easy to get into aviation it wasn't it wasn't for me as i said there was no obvious route into mm-hmm. that and you know you look at the the history of aviation over the 20th century it's a boys club mm-hmm. you know the the whole male establishment was hostile to women flying and they obstructed it and this culture started in world war 1 and of course it's a military culture hierarchical and and you know as i said it's it's riven by um Yep, sexism, chauvinism, and and I've seen it. I've got to say, I was such a novelty in the kind of flying I did because I was the only one doing it. I I probably had, fanta- I had fantastic treatment. Occasionally, you'd come across an attitude, but I I just <laughs> moved it aside and carried on, mm. frankly. And I've you know, certainly in terms of the sponsorship, I think people were just very drawn to to, one the passion of the project but I think they were drawn to the story of of how women have just you know they've been so underrated in aviation and that was part of you know huge motivation in doing the flights was to highlight the historic achievement of women in this industry Mm -hmm. and to to sort of you know, reintroduce this back to this latest generation, because I hadn't heard of Lady Heath, let me tell you, but most of the, this generation haven't heard of Amy Johnson mm. either. But these are fantastic role models. They were engineers, they were pilots, they were breaking records, they were setting records, they had short, brilliant lives, and they, they paid a huge price for it, I might add, as women mm. do.
0: Um, so... I think following on that kind of thread, so the Women in Aviation Charter, um, well, it'll be Women in Aviation and Aerospace Charter, won't it, um, has announced the new chair um, of the Civil Aviation Authority, which is Sir Stephen Hillier. Um, and as the new patron, he said that he pledges to encourage those around him to embrace equality, fuel inclusivity and challenge gender biases from the cockpit to the boardroom. And. Um, but it still feels like there's a long way to go like you know you've, you've obviously been flying a long time you've been you've been you know really you know heavily kind of trailblazing as it were um, and when we look at like the number of women that are kind of pilots worldwide the number and percentage is still so low I think when we were looking it's like less than six percent
2: there it's, or thereabouts Natasha you're right it's about five percent now yeah that varies across countries yeah you know I mean. India, for example, there's one yeah. airline in, in India, Indigo, who has 12% of women flying. Really? Which is a st- an amazing statistic. Yeah. What are they doing differently for a- then? For a country that has the the worst record for how it treats women in society. So that statistic is a, is a tremendous mm. um, thing for India. But in, in Britain, I mean, you only have to look at, you know, you know we think of countries like Saudi Arabia, like Pakistan, as I was flying through Saudi Arabia, the girls there had only just been allowed to drive cars. So that was happening as I was there. And again, I was very aware of just the, the paradox that here I am flying <laughs> across in a biplane. Probably nobody's done that since Lawrence of Arabia was flying with camels, you know, back in the 1920s. And they've only just been allowed to drive. But, you know, so we, we look at countries like that and we think, gosh, you know, they're so, they're so backwards. But we're not doing any better here in Britain, frankly. You know, we need to get our own house in order here. And look at, look at some of the issues in the media. You know, this latest CBI thing, the issues with the Met Police. You see it in the military. Almost at any industry you care to, to look at, there are issues with how the women are treated so it's this is a global problem. There's no doubt about it. You know, I have some experience in the aviation field, but, but uh, you know, it's got to change. You're right. Mm-hmm. It just hasn't changed quickly enough. And I get very despondent about it. I, I really do. I mean, I've been flying now for 40 years. I never pursued um, a conventional career in aviation. I wasn't actually... I weighed up whether I should go for the airlines, but I, I felt that I'd missed it because I was already in my early 30s. I didn't have the hours against the age... And I I just thought I'd miss the boat. And at that point, in fact, I cut the rope and and left New Zealand anyway and came back to Britain. So I had the added challenge of starting my life over again after a 14 year absence. Do you
1: see yourself as a role model then for for other women?
2: I don't really. I (laughs) I don't. uh, I I don't. I, I see the pioneers as fantastic role models. Um, but I, you know, I've I've had a rather unconventional life, and like the pioneers, I've I've never pursued a family. I, I recognized pretty early on that I wanted a life of adventure and freedom, and and that didn't tie in with the, the domestic burden, as I perceived it, of and sacrifice of of having a family. And you see, I I don't think you do have everything. I think you know, I think women have really struggled with that particular aspect because some women clearly do break the glass ceiling on that one and and are able to do it but i have seen you know my contemporaries some of my closest friends really struggling with the domestic and emotional pressures of parenting and trying to trying to have a a career as well very difficult to do
1: yeah there can often be prejudice around the
2: decision a woman making a decision
1: not to have a family and that that woman will get quite a lot of uh, discrimination because of that, because of that decision, when it's it's their decision, mm. you know, it's no one else's decision whether they want to start a family or not. Yeah. Um, I I am going to disagree with you, and I think you are a role model yeah, to, to young girls um, because they don't. If you know, we, we've got, as we said, very small numbers and percentages of women or of women um, becoming pioneers, becoming um, aviators or commercial flyers or whatever whatever path they choose. And young girls need somebody to, to look at and think, I can do that. Because it's not, you very lucky, it seems, but you're looking up and seeing men and thinking, I can still do that. I can do that, even mm. though I'm looking at a man. I think in today's world, sometimes young girls need women to look up to. And I think, you know, you're an yeah. example of someone that they can do that.
2: Well, you know, interesting. And I never, I never expected this. As we built the outreach campaign across the world so particularly with the Australia flight after Africa you know I just said there wasn't enough of that we were it was so pressured with the filming and everything else but we were able to really recalibrate this and work with Boeing and the Brittany's great campaign um, and Artemis Investments to build this global outreach which involved every stop and there were 62 stops to Australia over a three-month period so everywhere I went I was speaking at conferences, I'd visit schools, girls' schools, yeah. colleges, mentoring groups. So, you know, the idea was just to see as many people as possible, get them down to the airport to see, to see the aeroplane. And, and, you know, one, one of the most lovely gatherings was actually in Amman in Jordan. And a group of 14-year-olds came down from Queen Rania's Foundation School. And they came down with the British ambassador and they've got all their hijabs. They look, they look like little nuns, actually. And, you know, glasses. And they were there clustered around the aeroplane. They'd never seen anything like this, you know, this radial engine. And, 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 and they were just all so excited. And then they looked at me and, of course, they said, well, are you married? And how old are you? And do you have children? And, and, what? and I said, no, <laughs> I was married. I'm not any longer. And I don't have children. Of course, that's so unusual in their society. And, and one of them looked at me and she said, well, and how old are you? I said, well, uh, 53 at the time. And she looked at me and she was horrified. She said, but you're so old. No, You, <laughs> you should be at home resting. And I wow. said, yeah, I, I probably should be. I said, but you know, I was only two years older than you when I started flying. And that really set my course in life and you know it just became clear i never knew at that point i never knew how i would do it i never of course foresaw that i would end up doing all this and it's really become a vocation i i don't see it as a career in a professional sense but it's been an absolute passion and vocation all of my life and i just said look you know it's it's there it's not just aviation it is it is the wealth mm-hmm. of opportunity of opportunity in aviation and aerospace the engineering the crewing of the airplanes i said at every level just to be involved in this industry and i think i think there's so much you know women just have to get over that threshold it's a confidence thing it's perceived as being dangerous it's perceived as being may, you know it, and it is male dominated it is intimidating to women to see that but when you get them clustered and and in schools i was astounded at how enthusiastic i saw more enthusiasm in countries like pakistan and india than i've seen in britain i've spoken at i spoke at one girls school here in britain and out of 300 girls not one of them wanted to be a pilot and i said how is that possible How is that possible that none of you, it has never even occurred to any of you, and I think one wanted to be an engineer. Look at the statistics. This is a cultural thing. This is how girls are raised in this country. You know, I I saw my own upbringing. I mean, my father sort of had this again, this rather sexist attitude, you know, with four women in the house. You know, I'm not making tea. Mm. You know, so it's still there. It's very, very deep-rooted. And I, I don't know how you change that. You change it at schools. And you change it with parenting, but it starts in primary schools. And that's really where I'd Mm. love to focus my future efforts, frankly. Primary and secondary schools.
0: Yeah, we're often talking now when we think about the early career space. I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying that for us to build pipeline in this space, then we do need to look from like... 10 years and above now like get in have those conversations. you know okay you're not talking about the career at that stage but you know you're giving them the the tools and the thoughts around building things and and talking about it like you say much much earlier on to start building some of those key competencies and skills because um, like you say it starts it has to start much earlier
1: yeah, we're doing something with um, tech, I think, in, in this country, because we're now seeing more girls in science and tech. But it does feel like sort of engineering and, and aviation is is mm. falling behind. Yeah.
2: Sadly, it really is. And I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, you know, I spent quite a bit of time in America now, and there was one outstanding example in in, in Seattle. And of course, it was Boeing sponsored. It was the Risebeck College, which is an engineering college, and, they, and they're recruiting people there, predominantly girls, from the age of 14 on. And we had nothing to compare with that. Mm. And, of course, it's a whole nexus, the whole industry, which, of course, is Boeing-generated. But they've got the Museum of Flight there. They've got this wonderful engineering college and people apply to it. it it's it's almost like you're applying to college when you're mm. they're, they're looking at the application mm. from 12 13 14 and i was blown away by what they're doing there so i think we just need i, I think we need a sea change in how mm. we approach this
1: yeah i think you're right um, this has been a fascinating a chat um, we all we always ask our guests one final question, and that is around a top tip. So we see inclusion as an action. It's You can't just be, expect inclusion to happen. We've got to make it happen. Uh, so what would be your top tip?
2: Do you know, I think determination in life is probably the single biggest factor. You know, I mean, we all like instant gratification. But, you know, <laughs> I've learned in my time that it's the long game. It's the incremental things that you do that just, you know, that get you there in in the long run. So, you know, I never believed I could fly and I just kept chipping away at it. I really n- never believed it. And yet... <laughs> Here I am, this old bird, flying around <laughs> Pioneer. F- flying around in an even older bird. And it's, it's
1: been an absolute dream, I have to say. Mm. Well, this has been a dream conversation. So thank you so much for your time, Tracy. It's thank brilliant.
2: You. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You can find us on Twitter. Our handles are in the show notes below. And if you've liked what you've heard, please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically. Thanks for listening.